So here's a big thought for us this morning. Who leads leaders? Because leaders lead people. Okay? A leader leads people. But who or what is leading the leader? So I want you to hold that in mind as we go through the message today. The influence that is coming to bear upon the leader as they lead people is absolutely significant in so much of Scripture, but particularly for all of us as we exercise ministry. So a leader or a leadership team moves people into a desired future, whether that desired future is 15,000 people on our podcast or whatever it might be in your ministry context. Leaders or leadership teams move people into a desired future. And you've often heard people talk about vision. So vision is about providing people with a picture, an inspired view of what that desired future might look like. But underneath that picture, what influences are at work? What influences are influencing the leader or the leadership team? So, for instance, the influences could be the influence from others. It could be ideologies. It could be personal convictions. It could be the Holy Spirit. It could be the Word of God. But it's important for us to have an understanding of what those influences are in our own lives as leaders and in the context in where we are being led by others. One of the interesting questions when we think about influence is, who gains from this desired future that is being put before us? Who gains? And as we jump into this text uh, today, we're, we're taking a very significant chunk. I've gone from 1 Samuel 8 to 13. Okay, so settle in. It's going, to be, it's going to be a long haul. I think they've probably got two here because one might run out and then we'll just kick over into the other one. We're going to take that long. Maybe not so much. Okay, so Samuel is providing prophetic leadership amongst the people of God. All right, That we know up to this point in terms of where we have come to over the past few weeks in our sermon series. But Samuel's not the only person providing leadership in the context into which... Saul enters. It's really important for us to understand that the elders of Israel are significant influences and significant leaders in the life of the people of Israel. We read in 1 Samuel 8, 4-5, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, classic words, You're old, and your sons don't follow in your ways, appoint for us then a king to govern us like other nations. And then further on in chapter 8, we read, but the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel. We can assume primarily the elders of Israel. They said, no, but we are determined to have a king over us so that we also may be like other nations and that our king may govern us and go out before us and fight our battles. So what's the influence at work underneath this picture? Who gains from this desired future that's being painted of having a king just like the other nations? 
Why were they so determined? Remember, Lee preached last week on the return of the Ark of the Covenant. And as we think about that particular narrative, the return of the Ark came not through the work of any king, it came directly through the intervening work of God. So here you've got this particular intervening work of God returning the Ark of the Covenant on the one hand, and then the people saying, but we want a king just like everyone else. What's happened in between? And it's not just that they can have a king to lead them out into battle. Yes, you know, the presence of the Philistines on the horizon had upped the ante in terms of conflict. But it's perhaps a little bit more than that. And Walter Brueggemann suggests this. He says, The matter of kingship in ancient Israel is not a response to a military crisis, but is part of a large comprehensive change in social relationship affecting every dimension of Israelite life. So as tribal society with its discrete independent units, as it experienced political and economic fusion, new patterns of power, of wealth and land control emerged. And in this view, monarchy is the culmination of a drive towards centralisation of monopoly, of kingship and absolutism, accompanied by the emergence of an enormous economic surplus. So the whole social fabric, the whole socio-economic landscape, the political landscape is shifting. And it's shifting rapidly and very, very significantly. And so here's a a little bit of a, a leadership lesson for all of us. Either we have, or at some point we will, find ourselves in chaotic situations. And whenever change is producing chaos, no matter what the reason for the change is, normally in situations of chaos, people look for order. Because order helps to calm what seems like very stormy conditions in the midst of chaos. So we look for leaders to bring a desired future where the desire is order out of chaos but here's the kicker when we move from chaos to order that is the point where the opportunity to benefit is at its greatest once things are ordered and locked down there's systems that are put in place government that is put into some kind of structure and the opportunity for benefit isn't as high as What happens in the recreating work of moving from chaos to order? So the people, especially the elders, are pushing a driving uh, and a change agenda that will provide a new way of governing because, as I might suggest, for them in particular, there's lots to be gained. There's lots of opportunity there for people to gain economically, politically, and in a whole range of other ways, to establish themselves as key figures in the life of a new nation that's developing. So what's wrong with that? Anything wrong with that? Seems like it should be okay, because it's not that different to the way in which our society right now functions. What's Yahweh's response? So Yahweh had the intention of a monarchy being established at some point. It was part of Yahweh's desired future. 
But not like this. Not in a way where some would gain at the expense of others and particularly not in a way whereby the people would forsake God. And we read, But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to govern us. Samuel prayed to the Lord and the Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Just as they have done to me. From the day I brought them up out of Egypt to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so also they are doing to you. Now then, listen to their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So in keeping with the desire that the people had to be like other nations, God leads Samuel to a point and anoint the most likely person in all the land to be king. We read that there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, a man of wealth. You'd want your king to come from some serious money, right? He had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man, right? They need to be able to have some kind of presence, some kind of stature. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. And added to this, he stood head and shoulders above everyone else. So if you're saying, give us a king like all the other nations, and bearing in mind that most of the other nations, their kings were like gods, small g, gods. Give us someone who is the best of Israel. Give us someone who, when they lead us Out into battle, we will have pride in the way that they look. We'll have pride in their stature. Their presence will be the full embodiment of who we want to be as a people. So you go for someone who's got wealth, someone who's very handsome, and someone who's very tall. It's exactly what the people would have expected. But how fickle is the view of stature, of appearance. How fickle is it when we look at the external before we have any engagement with the internal? And we know how fickle this is because after Saul, when Samuel is searching out a new king, this is what we hear. God saying very clearly, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature. For the Lord does not see as mortals see. They look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks where? At the heart. Now the Almighty God who looks on the heart would have seen Saul in all that he was. And it is intriguing to consider what God saw. Many people since have offered various descriptions of Saul. In their commentary on 1 and 2, Samuel Longman and Garland suggest the following, that scholarly studies of Saul have depicted him as, among other things, villain, tragic figure, flawed ruler, naive farm boy, degenerate madman, fate-driven pawn, reluctant king, who was at times moody, impulsive, suspicious, violent, insincerely remorseful, out of control and disobedient to God. What a list. Fine attributes. 
not exactly what we would be wanting to form candidates for ministry in, to be like that, perhaps? But Saul wasn't all bad. And I'm not, I'm not going to spend the rest of the time trying to defend him, but in the same uh, commentary, Longman and Garland go on to suggest that at other times he was kind, he was thoughtful, he was generous, he was courageous, very much in control, and willing to obey God. So rather than trying to spend our time psychoanalyzing Saul, of which could be an incredibly uh, big distraction, I want to look at the influence or the influences that are leading Saul. Getting back to this big point of what are the influences that impact on leaders? What is it that's leading Saul? And there's a whole range of different things that we can see that are influencing Saul. But they all tend to point into the one direction of his leadership. In chapters 13 and 15, we see a couple of prevailing influences upon Saul. In chapter 13, the prevailing influence upon Saul's leadership is the fear of defeat. And in chapter 15 is the arrogance of victory. So we've got these two polarities at work influencing his leadership. But these opposite types of influence still compel Saul in the same direction of leadership. Namely, he took it upon himself to recreate the Word of God to suit his actions. He took it upon himself to recreate the Word of God to suit his actions. So in chapter 13, Saul makes a burnt offering in the midst of a conflict with the Philistines without Samuel present. So making such an offering without the prophet present contravened God's words spoken through Samuel. But the deeper reality is that Saul's actions displayed no confidence in God's capacity to intervene. His fear was growing. Many people had abandoned him. Samuel had not entered the scene and the Philistines were pressing. But his failure to wait on Yahweh to intervene became the issue for him. This same God who had worked independently of the kings in returning the ark was the same one that Saul should have waited for. Now we can all talk about this from this point of view. When you're actually in the heat of the situation, it might be different. But isn't it when leaders are under the pump that what is most uh, intrinsic to them comes to the surface? You may have been in a situation where you've been under the pump and it's when you are under pressure that what is really in you comes out and comes to the fore. And so he is pressed, he is squeezed, and in that moment, what comes to the fore? I will take matters into my own hands. I will not wait for God because, you know what? I don't need him to turn up because I can actually do what I like in this situation. In some sense, Saul had developed a perception that he had a kind of dominion over God, that he could manipulate God, particularly by the action of this burnt offering. There's a lot more that could be said about that. But in a similar way, in chapter 15, the word of God is given to Saul to go and utterly destroy the Amalekites. Instead, Saul creates things to be done his way. And whilst he does pretty much the whole job, what we read is this. 
Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. He took King Agag of the Amalekites alive. So not a lot of utter destruction going on there. But he did utterly destroy all the people with the edge of the sword. Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the cattle and of the fatlings and the lambs and all that was valuable and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they utterly destroyed. So Saul repeats the pattern of recreating things in the way that he wants them. And he justifies his obedience by suggesting to Samuel that he has utterly destroyed the Amalekites except for the king and the choice animals, etc. And then Samuel nails him with this. Something that you may well have heard before. And I don't know what Tony would have took on this, but I'm going with, you know, I won't do it, but I reckon he's probably a little bit toey. And he says, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obedience to the voice of the Lord? Surely to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. Similarly, in 1 Samuel 13, after Saul... uh, conducts the burnt offering, Samuel says to him, you have not kept what the Lord has commanded you. You've done things your way, but you haven't obeyed what it is that God has commanded you. And essentially, yes, God gave them a king, but God was still the king. And so in not obeying, that was Saul's means and way in which to say, I am the king. There can't be two kings. So how do we then look at the way in which God leads? What influences God's leadership in response to Saul's actions, in response to the elders of Israel and their actions to seek a king to govern them like all the other nations? What's God's actions? What's his leadership? Where does God lead from? I want to suggest that God leads from grace. Without being cliche, but the prevailing influence on God's leadership is God's grace. Let's just unpack that a little bit. A quick snapshot of this leadership sees that the way in which, in a sense, the movement of grace flows is that it always starts with God creating. And God has set Israel apart as the people of God. God created these people, called them out and created them as God's people in a covenant relationship with God. But then doesn't humanity, us included, don't we have, as the people of God then had, the capacity to recreate in the image of their desired future? Hence we have the elders saying, give us a king to govern us like the other nations, or Saul failing to be able to heed and adhere to the commands of God. And when the created ones start recreating in their own image, there is always 
a diminishing of the worth and the dignity and the value of certain people. Those with the power to recreate do so, and those without this power, they end up serving or suffering. But this temporary form of recreation always reaches a limit. And what happens when people reach it? It reaches limits in our own lives when we try and do it, because we find at some point the temporary doesn't satisfy in the way in which the desired future might suggest it will. We see it time and time again in Scripture, and in this particular circumstance, we hear this. And the people said to Samuel, Pray to the Lord your God for your servants, so that we may not die, for we have added to all our sins the evil of demanding a king for ourselves. And the movement and the flow of God's grace is such that At that point, when the people turn, having realised that the efforts and the fruit of their own recreating efforts has only served to not just diminish humanity and what has been created, but to diminish their relationship with the Creator, at that point, God's grace is most profound, isn't it? Because the profoundness of God's grace is seen in the restoration of, and the renewal of God's covenant relationship, of the people to God, and the renewal of God's reign and rule over the people. In a sense, there is a rightness about that, a righteousness about that, that only God's grace can achieve, that only God's leadership, motivated by grace, can achieve. And it's why Samuel can say to the people, do not be afraid. You have done all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after useless things that cannot profit or save, for they are useless. And these are words to Saul as well. For the Lord will not cast away his people. For his great name's sake. Because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. So whether it's in this time, whether it's in our time, the desired future of God is always that his name would be exalted above any other name. Otherwise, what are we in ministry for? If it is to exalt our own capacities and efforts if it's to exalt a denomination even, that doesn't rate compared to exalting the name of God. And these are words for us too. Let me personalise it for you. For the Lord will not cast away you. Why? For His great name's sake. Because it has pleased the Lord to make you a person for himself. A part of the people of God, the family of God. So for the Christian leader, the prevailing influence 
on your, my, our leadership, is that the name of God would be known and exalted above any other name. Let me encourage you to think about the way in which God's grace influences your leadership. The way in which you lead people, not just manage programs and processes and policies and whatever else, but the way in which you lead people. Because there will be times when, as you lead, people will want to go their own way and do their own thing. But it's grace that allows for the leader to be able to stay faithful to the people and to the desired future. A desired future where, above all, God is exalted. And that people, in this wide, wide community and world that we live in, might be pointed towards Jesus. The one who we know is the name that people can call upon in order to be saved. Let's pray. God, there's so much that can influence our leadership. So many different thoughts, ideas, people. In this moment, Lord, give us ears to hear, open our spirit to be able to know that we are yours, to know your grace at work in us. For you have created us. You have seen us in those times where we have sought to recreate who we are, who we think others should be. You've seen us reach our limits. You've heard us call on your name that we might be saved. And you have restored us and renewed us, not just in you, Jesus, but in the purpose, in the vision that we might have for our lives. And in what it is that we can do in serving you. All for your great name's sake. Lord, I just particularly pray for those who who need the uh, encouragement to be courageous. To be given courage. To step into uh, the spaces that you are calling them into. And to wait upon you. For we know that you do not leave us, nor do you forsake us. So I pray that you would, particularly for those who are waiting on you at the moment, Lord, give them ears to hear you, to know your leading, to know your presence, and to know that you are faithful. In all things, Lord, we praise you as the God who we can read in Scripture as the God of all, the Almighty One. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.